The world is your oyster is a phrase we've all heard before. It's been in the English language for centuries, but do you know where it comes from? I'm sure it wouldn't surprise you to know, like so many phrases and quotations that we say and cherish, the world is your oyster comes from none other than the playwright and famous bard himself, William Shakespeare. During Act 2, Scene 2 of The Merry Wives of Windsor, two characters are contemplating their honor versus their wealth. One character, Falstaff, says to another character, called Pistol, I will not lend thee a penny. Pistol then replies, Why then, the world's mine oyster, which I with sword will open. This is kind of an audacious way of saying, I am in a position to, by forceful means if necessary, seize the opportunities life has to offer me and make them my own. Now, over the centuries, as with many phrases, the wording has changed slightly from mine to your, and fortunately also has become less zealous. It's implied in the phrase that the oyster is a metaphor for life and what life has to offer once we crack it open. Maybe there will be a pearl, which is often but not always found tucked within. Perhaps the pearl is a metaphor as well, for success or fortune. We are not promised that we'll always find a pearl in every oyster, nor in life is there the promise that success, let alone fortune, is guaranteed. Isn't it peculiar that, because of William Shakespeare, an oyster has become a metaphor for life and its opportunities? For Thomas Downing, the oyster was much more than a metaphor. The world was most definitely his oyster, or really, the oyster was most definitely his world. I'm Lexi Hub, and this is the Bivalve Trail Podcast. It is 1821. The President of the United States is James Monroe. Having just been re-elected for a second term, in New York City, immigrants are trickling in. When we think of New York, many aspects that the city is known for come to mind. But during the first quarter of the 1800s, New York City was known as the oyster capital of the world. The tradition of slurping down oysters there goes back long before its founding. Archaeologists have uncovered evidence of piles of oyster shells in the New York Harbor area dating back to 6950 BC. It's believed that the Native Americans in the area feasted on them as well. Oysters thrived for thousands of years before the first European settlers came, purifying and filtrating the brackish water. Brackish meaning a slightly salty combination of fresh river and seawater. In fact, when Henry Hudson arrived in 1609, there was said to be 350 square miles of oyster reefs around what is now the New York City metro area. According to The Big Oyster by Mark Kurlansky, once upon a time, there were enough oysters in the harbor to filter all of the surrounding water there. If you don't know the book The Big Oyster, I highly suggest getting your hands on a copy. You can find it at Sundial Books on Main Street. It's an excellent history of New York City and anatomy lesson of the oyster. Thomas Downing's story is a highlight. Kurlansky emphasizes that much of the story of New York includes the oyster. To understand one, you can't leave out the other. Before Broadway and Central Park, New York City was a thriving oyster haven. The city was easy to get to from the Atlantic Ocean, 
and visitors would travel there to partake in the robust culture surrounding the local oysters and how they can be served. Oysters were being sent to restaurants in Chicago, Denver, and San Francisco. They were the original, true New Yorkers. Thomas Downing, the hero of our story, is working as an oysterman. He would wake in the early morning, long before dawn, and row himself out to the Jersey Flats in a small boat that he had purchased. The instrument he used to dig the oyster beds with was called tongs. But instead of looking like tongs you find in the kitchen today, these tongs looked more like a garden rake. Not surprisingly, oyster tongs are still sometimes used today. Having grown up tonging for oysters in the Shingatig Bay with the inlets and creeks, Thomas was incredibly savvy. He would return to the docks with the best oysters that could be found, returning before the other oystermen. Then Downing would sell his oysters to his regular customers and also the cellars and restaurants that line the streets in Lower Manhattan. Restaurants would occasionally serve oysters, but the more common place to find them were oyster cellars. The first one opening in 1763. Though fairly popular, oysters were not classy or posh. Sitting slightly below street level, oyster cellars were described as rough and tumble houses of ill repute. They attracted rowdy and half-drunken men smelling of cheap brandy, who would disturb and offend the neighborhood well beyond midnight. This was certainly no place to take a lady. The language was obscene and harsh. Small personal belongings like coin purses were frequently pickpocketed. Ladies who would be hanging out at oyster cellars were described as all of one kind, or shall we say, ladies of the night. In the rear of many oyster cellars would be private rooms for eating, drinking, and general merriment. Kurlansky claims that prostitution and oysters frequently went hand in hand and were the two most famous New York experiences to be had. A balloon-shaped lantern made of red muslin was usually hanging outside of the oyster cellars with a lit candle inside. Red light from the lanterns gleamed out into the streets. Next to the lanterns would be a sign, and in nice capital letters read, Oysters in Every Style. It was no coincidence that the red lanterns that hung outside of the cellars were much like the red lights that hung outside of prostitution houses, because, as I explained before, the two were often enjoyed together. How did the oyster become culturally linked to eroticism and prostitution? This relationship goes back a long time. Ancient Romans considered the oyster to be an aphrodisiac. Doctors would prescribe their patients to eat oysters because of their perceived amatory power. Even Giovanni Casanova, the famed Italian adventurer and notorious seducer, believed in the power of oysters and was said to eat 50 of them before breakfast. Napoleon Bonaparte was rumored to eat oysters before going into battle. I'm not sure how the relationship started, but centuries later, it was determined that oysters contain lots of zinc, which is necessary for creating testosterone. Much like New York City, the oyster has an illustrious past as well. Thomas Downing, now a 30-year-old man, knew the culture surrounding the oyster could be more respectable. It could be greater than what was around him. His philosophy was that oysters should be enjoyed by all of the citizens of New York City, 
from the wealthy socialites to the well-to-do bankers. Thomas knew the oyster could become a food of luxury. His philosophy became the building blocks of his next endeavor. Never one to shy away from opportunity and personal growth, Downing opened his own oyster house in 1825 at Number 5 Broad Street, the same address that is painted on the oyster crock I described in Episode 1. And if that street name makes you think of dollar signs, then you're on the money. The brand new Downing's Oyster House was located within a few feet of where the New York Stock Exchange and J.P. Morgan Chase stand today. Even before these buildings were there, this was the heart of the financial district. The Merchants Exchange and the Customs House were close by. Downing understood that the way to make money was to appeal to the rich white men who worked for these financial institutions and have his business be a place upscale people wanted to patronize. Downing's Oyster House quickly blossomed and the business became known for two things, a reputation of class and elegance and for serving the fattest and most succulent oysters. Downings became the most celebrated place for oysters in all of New York City. By 1835, just 10 years later, the growing popularity of Downings forced the business to expand into the two buildings on either side of the original site. Now, Downings Oyster House was located at the intersection of Broad and Wall Streets. The great expansion allowed for Thomas to build a large vault in the cellar that was used for storing oysters and even had running salt water. Because, after all, if you're going to be the number one oyster seller in town, you're going to need a lot of oysters, plus a lot of space and the ability to keep them fresh. George Downing, Thomas and Rebecca's eldest son, who would in his adulthood serve as Thomas's biographer, described his father as an unusually energetic man, and the oyster house as fashionable for ladies and gentlemen, whole families, the most respected of the city, to enjoy a repast which would cause their sons and daughters to long for repetitions. Ladies and gentlemen, with towel in hand and an English oyster knife made for the purpose, would open their own oysters and drop into the burning hot concave shell a lump of sweet butter and the other seasonings and partake of a treat. Downing's was the place you could bring a lady. The appeal went far beyond the white financiers. Local politicians and other wealthy businessmen also became regulars. that because the most famous oyster house in the whole city was owned by an African-American man, or since slavery was illegal in New York City, that the business was open to white and black customers. Segregation, though not enshrined in law, was ubiquitous. So even though Thomas himself was highly renowned and revered as an upstanding citizen, he could only serve white patrons in his establishment. Most oyster sellers during the mid-1800s served them in only three ways, stewed, steamed, and raw. I like to think that Thomas learned how to serve oysters from his mother because Downing's Oyster House introduced many more ways to enjoy them, as fried, in oyster pie, fish with oyster sauce, and even a poached turkey stuffed with oysters. I'm not so sure how I feel about a turkey stuffed with oysters, 
maybe it was like oyster stuffing, which I've never had before, but I'm also not positive I'd like that either. Downing's oysters were sent across the country to major cities as well as overseas. London and Paris were big fans. His oysters even reached the noblest of them all, Her Royal Highness, Queen Victoria. The Queen was said to be so pleased with the very choice oysters that Thomas Downing sent her that in return she sent him a gold chronometer watch as a thank you. I don't know how the kitchen staff at Buckingham Palace prepared and served the oysters, but whatever it was, I'm sure it was fit for a queen. The effort Downing made to guarantee his clientele that they were being served the greatest oysters that could be found was not a secret. The advertisement he placed in newspapers publicized that he made extra arrangements to furnish a supply of oysters which were all excellent in flavor, size, and quality. Downing was so determined to serve the best of the best, he would row a skiff out into the Hudson Bay during the very early hours of the morning, just like he did when he was working the beds himself, and meet the oystermen while they were working. Thomas would bargain with them to get a top-notch deal on his first choice of the oysters. You might think Downing's bargaining would have annoyed the oystermen, but it didn't. He was, after all, one of them, and very experienced in the oyster trade. Thomas was clever. After his negotiations with the oystermen were complete, he would quickly row back to the docks and stand with a group of buyers that were waiting for their arrival. Oysters were sold like an auction. Buyers called bids to sellers until a price was agreed upon, much like the New York Stock Exchange today. You know how I said Downing was clever? Well, during the auction, he would call out bids to bring up the price. The other buyers, feeling the competition, would then bid higher. This would go on until Thomas felt the price was satisfactory and then would back out. Therefore, the oystermen got a top-notch deal for their crops. Even though Thomas Downing had already purchased his oysters, his bidding drove up the prices and the oystermen made more money. So his bargaining wasn't a nuisance because Thomas proved himself to be quite helpful back at the docks. Thomas Downing became the caterer of New York City. His advertisement in the Evening Post explained that the Oyster House could be hired to cater your New Year's Eve party. Downing described himself as perfectly acquainted with the best method of preparing pickled, stewed, fried, or boiled oysters. He will also provide, in the most modern style, boned turkeys, alamode beef, hams, tongues, jellies, and an oyster pan roast with wine and chili. And in case someone needed any more convincing, the ad promised he has made extra exertions to furnish the most liberal supplies and to fill any orders that may be given to him for New Year's Day and will provide waiters and every necessary attendance in all parts of the city. So, not only could you order a delectable meal, but a waiter came too. That's not too shabby. As the most sought-after caterer for all official events, Downings was called upon when a company opened, a ship was launched, or when a bank or insurance company elected its board members. Then, in 1842, he received the catering gig of a lifetime. The former mayor of New York, Philip Hone turned to Downings to cater a party welcoming an English writer during his inaugural trip 
to the United States. This lavish celebration was called the Bose Ball, and the author coming to the U.S. for the first time was 30-year-old Charles Dickens. Bose Ball took from Dickens's nickname, Bose. The story is, when Charles Dickens was a youth, he gave one of his younger brothers the nickname Moses. Because the younger brother spoke nasally, the nickname became Boses, and somehow that led to becoming Dickens's own nickname. Thousands of people scrambled to put the Bose Ball together. Downing's Oyster House was paid $2,200 to serve oysters and hors d'oeuvres to over 2,500 of New York's elite. The grand feast included over 50,000 oysters, 50 hams, 25 ducks, 50 rounds of beef, and much more. The celebration went splendidly, and everyone in attendance had a lovely time. Well, everyone except for the guest of honor. Charles Dickens published a collection of essays about his visit to the U.S. titled American Notes. Though he was impressed by Thomas Downing, he was not impressed at all by the crowd's enthusiastic consumption of oysters. In American Notes, he described oysters as piles of indigestible matter, and watching people eat them as a solemn and awful sight to see, watching gaping gullets. This not-so-kind observation offended Philippone, who shot back with, Oysters are the most celebrated food in New York. Hone said the party was the greatest affair of modern times and the tallest compliment ever paid to a little man. Before Hone was finished, he made sure to offer Thomas Downing a nice compliment by calling him the great man of oysters. Thomas Downing was a local and international sensation. His clients recognized the painstaking effort he put forth to ensure he served the biggest and most succulent oysters, waking before dawn to go out to meet his comrades. He delighted his patrons with new and delectable oyster dishes. His ambitions took an industry that had been salacious and cheap and revolutionized it to become one of luxury and elegance. The oyster house was unlike any other. It became the very model of comfort and prosperity. The decor included damask curtains, fine rugs, mirrored hallways, and gold sparkling chandeliers. There were no slovenly men making obscene spectacles of themselves or women of an improper nature. Downing's Oyster House was where the good men about town, you know, wealthy white men, could participate in cheerful chat and felt comfortable bringing their wives without fear of exposing them to unruly behavior. Downing's was the place a lady could be seen, accompanied by a gentleman, of course. But that wasn't enough. As Thomas's wealth grew, so did his determination. He took his reverence and success as a restauranteur and turned it into a tool for promoting social change through philanthropy and the founding of multiple organizations that progressed the African-American community. His son George called him a man who knew not tire. I guess you and I could say this man was non-stop. Thank you for listening to the second episode of the Bivalve Trail podcast and the story of Thomas Downing. I hope you're finding his story to be as fascinating as I do because his life story, like so many that belong to people of color, have been kept in the dark for too long. They need to be heard and celebrated. 
So if your friends like a good story or appreciate history, because who doesn't? Please share the Bivalve Trail with them. The Bivalve Trail is researched and written by me, Lexi Hub. Script editing by Kathy Hub and Justin Eric. Podcast artwork by Angie Hetty. Recording and post-production by Longtail Studios. Music by Bill Troxler. The Bivalve Trail is a production of the Shingatig Island Theater Company and our parent organization, the Shingatig Cultural Alliance. A big thank you to our project partner, the Museum of Shingatig Island. Please visit shingatigca.org slash bivalvetrail.html for my list of sources. While you're there, check out the picture of me standing where number five Broad Street is, according to Google Maps, and where Downing's Oyster House once stood. You'll also find the only existing photo, well, drawing, of Thomas Downing. More on that later. Until next time.